You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. Hey, everyone. You are listening to another episode of the All Things Private Practice Podcast. I am joined today by Dr. Dominique Pritchett, therapist, speaker, health and wellness consultant. I definitely just said that wrong. What did you say? Well-being consultant. Close enough. Well-being consultant. I always forget. My brain is so scattered. Anyway, happy to have you here. And we are going to talk about how practices can, in, can create more inclusive spaces for Black women and Black girls for therapy. It's a topic that really is important for me um, as my wife is Black and has a hard time finding therapists that look like her, especially in the wonderful state of North Carolina. So I'm really happy to have you on and um, I appreciate you making the time. Thank you so much. I'm delighted to be here. So tell us a little bit about, you know, what you're doing and what you're creating, because I see all your social media stuff. One, I just want to say this. You made me like so envious of some of the stuff you were doing the other day. Like you posted a couple months ago. I automated all my postings for the rest of the year. I did these things like I've got this set up. I've got this set up. And I was like, holy shit. I, how do I, how do I be like her? <laughs> Well, first, it's just me at my practice. I'm not ready to go into group practice just yet. I honor that and I'm okay with it. And so one of the things I actually enjoy doing is learning graphic design and website development and design. So it's like my little hobby. And, you know, I'm starting to introduce that for therapists and uh, offer it as a service. But yeah, so I wanted to really, really focus on my clients this year. I didn't want to delegate anything out just yet because a lot of my content and comes from pop culture, all the hot mess that's going on around the world. It comes from that and only I can put my voice into it. And so I took a whole day or two and automated and did a year's worth of content about hot topics and all things related to wellness. When you say a day or two, <laughs> how many hours a day are we talking to, to create an entire year of content? You know, between my snack breaks and my dog, you know, eating at my foot, um, I could probably go for about four hours each day. You know, I have a very good system. And because, you know, as a therapist, it is important that I still have my voice out there in multiple areas, social media, on my website, you know, with my clients everywhere, because it's all about where can people find me? You never know where they'll hear your voice, such as a podcast. So about four hours a day, four or five hours a day, I came up with templates. I came up with my system and it's set and I don't have to do nothing but push that button at the start of the year and it, it goes. That is remarkable. And now I'm like rethinking my entire process because my, con my content is more like what is happening and coming to my mind in the moment. But I, I think that's a part of my neurodivergence sometimes. But, you know, and maybe you're already thinking about this and I, you know, I don't want to like uncover it if you are, but like that could be something that you could be offering to therapists to like help them create that. And I feel like that would be so valuable. I was working on a course and I know I need to do a live masterclass. Um, a lot of therapists, we weren't taught stuff like this, you know, marketing and content development and uh, how do I diversify one post? I can have five legs come from one post. 
you know, you probably see me talk a lot about Black women and girls, the inequities that we face, access to care, how people can be active allies and create spaces and cultures of well-being and belonging. And so from one post, I can come up with five legs, a podcast episode, a blog, um, a live, some content on social media. So I'm not recreating a wheel or making this hard. So yes, to your point, I will be offering that and following through with the two. It's just such a wonderful offering. And and that I want everyone to hear that because one, one piece of content can create so many different little snippets and different ideas too. Instead of feeling like so overwhelmed with like, I've got to create more, I've got to create more, I've got to think of new ideas. And you don't. And you can also recycle content when, it, when necessary. Like we forget about things every like 90 days anyway. Um, but that is very cool. And I've been watching it and it, it honestly makes me want to shift how I do a lot of my stuff too. So congrats on that. Um, you just mentioned like the passion, the value behind what you do, especially creating um, spaces for black women, black girls, black teenagers to have access to care, to have therapists who are inclusive, who are at least anti-racist and training and going through the motions and really not just saying like, I just took a diversity class and now I'm good to go. So Tell us about this. Tell us about your mission and like the value behind it too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it definitely starts with my upbringing. You know, I would do so much growing up from abuse to homelessness until the day I turned 18, uh, being exposed to drugs, gangs, all of it. And everyone who reached out for help was white. And I grew up uh, not trusting white people because my family didn't trust white people because they always came with a, an unwanted mission or agenda to a welfare check because someone called. And so not seeing many helpers look like me, whether they were therapists, social workers, even teachers, I didn't have my first Black teacher and she was a sub until my ninth year in high school, ninth grade year. And so it started with just my experiences growing up because I said, well, if there's not many of us or many of us getting the help we need, I focus on understanding Black women and girls' narrative because all of our cultures are different, even the subcultures. But your narrative is your narrative. However, we don't need to spend a lot of time talking about what it's like to, quote unquote, be Black. Let's do the healing. Mm, that's powerful. And so Yes. And so that was so important to me to open up a private practice curated for Black women and girls in the state of Wisconsin, which is a state that is not so friendly to Black folks. We represent a high population of the jail, but a small percent of the overall population. And so I do pride myself on being the first and only practice in the state curated for Black women and girls. But we have some amazing Black folks doing some amazing therapeutic work throughout the state. That's incredible. And what a freaking journey, too, in terms of what, you've, what you just named and going through. And it sounds like that driving force of also providing something that you weren't able to access growing up and just making sure that people didn't, don't have the same experiences due to inequity of care, right? Like even in North Carolina... It's not a state that's friendly towards black people for the most part, except, you know, maybe a few select cities. And that would even be a stretch. And, you know, you see these quote unquote progressive cities like Asheville, where like if my wife and I go out to eat, we don't see another black person out. It's like, you know, fake liberal bullshit. But nevertheless, we don't need to go down that road. 
tell us about the struggles that are coming up though, as you're creating this in a state like Wisconsin, like what kind of barriers are you facing as you're like, this is my mission. This is my drive. Like this is, this is really my passion project. Yeah. You definitely have a lot of people who say you're discriminating yourself. You're being a racist yourself. And I believe in the power of infinity spaces because there is a space for everyone. When the whole world is designed for white folks, let allow people to have a corner that is unique and universal to them. Research shows when those spaces are created, people do better and they do well and they can grow. And so I got a lot of that stuff. I actually got a few threats when I first opened up my practice, you know, that, oh, your business won't last. We won't let it last because you're promoting racism. And I'm just like, help make it, make it, make it, make it make sense. And so that was one thing. But I've always been integral in my community. I've served on boards and committees since I was 13 years old. And right now I serve on the Kenosha County Health Department, as well as a local outreach center's board. And they are very supportive of my mission because they recognize the uniqueness of it. So I've been faced with, you know, racism. I've faced with threats that people are going to let my business succeed. But since I opened August of last year, and it, or two years ago, people now see the value. When we look at bigger hospital systems, and we have three major hospital systems in our little old town, um, a lot of my clients, they tell me testimonies of not being welcome there, not seeing any support doctors or other staff that look like them. So regardless of all the BS that people threw at me about I was promoting discrimination and racism, I'm not going anywhere because my city and surrounding cities meet the Love and Wellness Center. Damn. Yeah, that's that's a really powerful statement. So since 2020, it sounds like you started this business during COVID and I imagine it's been really thriving and you, you stay busy. I mean, obviously there's a need, right? And that just disproves that statement of like, this isn't a safe space. This is a racist space. Like this is fucking bullshit. But nevertheless, the ability to persevere through that and say, I'm going to continue to keep showing up. And I imagine that is wonderful role modeling for the clients who are seeking you out and who need your support. Absolutely. And I make it an, I make it an appointment to go to community gatherings. You know, we're getting ready for our annual Juneteenth celebration. They're like, that's my therapist, that's Dr. Dominique. I'm like, okay, well, you just put all your confidentiality out there. <laughs> but I'm not that kind of therapist that will not go to community events. I'm aware of who lives in my neighborhood. I'm aware of who lives up the street from me. I am an active member of this community. And one of the things I love about working with Black women and girls is that there is a sense of pride and respect for their doctors and their helpers. And I think that is multi-generational. You know, the esteem is definitely there. But I tell my clients, this is a partnership. This is a collaborative therapeutic relationship. I just happen to be on this side of the screen. I love that. And I think that's so true. It's like this. And also the ability to trust a doctor opposed to, we all know the research about people of color not getting equitable care in, in the hospital systems and the mental health systems and being made to feel like, the issues are just being presented in a way where it's like, this is behavioral or this is just like embellishment or you're, this isn't really real and dismissing that. And we see, you know, statistically, a lot of people of color not reaching out for support and keeping it within the family system, right? In the family unit. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like in terms of culture and in terms of black women and black girls seeking out therapy, what are you seeing now at, in, that we're in 2022? 
I work with a lot of individuals who identify as spiritual or religious. And so that's a whole nother layer of the culture. Um, but in 2022, people are seeing some of their favorite singers, their favorite dancers, uh, authors, and whoever openly talking about mental health. And there have been some great pop culture movies and TV shows, or there's like Insecure or something like that. And in my profile, like on all the directories, it states, do you find yourself watching TV and you see a favorite sister and she's telling your story? And so a lot of my clients, like I saw that movie and it sparked something in me. And so now in 2022, people are willing to make the call, but the person on the other end of that call, are they holding space for Black women and girls to be seen, supported, and safe from day one? Yeah. And how, how often is the, you know, the accurate answer to that in terms of being able to hold that space and actually make someone feel safe? Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't seem like it's, it's a high um, prevalency in terms of our field where people don't do the training, they don't do the work, but they're the only option in town. And that just can't feel good. Yes. It definitely doesn't feel good because I am her and she is me. And so I still go places. I don't go around saying, I'm a doctor, so you got to give me preferential treatment. I am Dominique here for my appointment. And when they learn about me, their tone and everything changes. I tell Black women, you don't need alkalades or alphabet soup to be treated with respect and for people to honor your experiences. This past weekend, I was at a health and wellness event for breast cancer survivors, as well as open to the community. And I spoke on one of my signature methods. It's called the SUSTA method to self-advocacy. And it starts right there. I tell people, my job is not to give you your voice. You already have it. My role is to move some stuff out the way or guide you to move some stuff out the way so you can elevate your voice. I love that. I mean, that that's tangible, right? Like that's empowering and saying, you already know how to, to kind of support yourself. You already know who you are, but now it's about working through some stuff so you can really do it confidently. And what kind of results do you see when you're, you're offering this method? Because I've seen you post about it and I was always like, damn, that's really freaking cool that you have this thing that you're really putting out into the community. Yeah. In a therapy space, you know, when I can use a common uh, vernacular, a common language, sis, you know, lateness lady. All of that starts with, can I self-advocate and be who I am no matter where I am? So often, Black and brown women and girls were one of few in many spaces, okay? And so unless it's, you know, in our community and, you know, at church or something like that, but when we're looking to step outside of that, we're one of few in many spaces. And so when I'm able to offer that perspective through my solution-focused therapeutic style, uh, people are like, sis, I'm like, yes, yes, sis, what? I'm not offended when people call me sis versus doc. And to break down all of that oppressive shit, people thrive off that. They're like, I'm here to get fed and I am here to become a better version of myself. I don't need all the stuff that's going to keep you away. I want you to come back. That seems like that really reduces the barrier too, to, to kind of building that rapport and that trust and that safety. And, you know, you're mentioning some things about even like the way you, the way... Yeah long day, the way you word things on your website and in your copy and in your, you know, your, your Facebook posts and the things that you do, relatability is so big, right? Like the way we speak, the way we present ourselves, the way we kind of connect with our audience, our clients, you know, before they've even met us. 
So by staying current, by like using examples, like, are you watching Insecure? And like, is this coming up for you? That creates that instant rapport, right? Like that creates that instantaneous connection before they've even met you. Yes. Yep. And that is so important for therapists to keep in mind. You know, we talk about niching, we talk about this, we talk about that. But if you are not relatable, um, how can people know you, trust you and like you way before you even get to the office? I have had clients who say, I've been following you for a year and you have consistently shown up. And now that I bumped into you in the avocado aisle at the grocery store, you're the same person online as you are in, per, uh, in person. And I say, well, it takes less energy to, um, you know, be me. Yeah, I think that just speaks to authenticity, right? And if you're acting and, and presenting within your value system and who you really are, you don't have to put on this mask or this facade of like, you know, I'm going to present a certain way. And I think therapists do themselves a disservice way too often and talk about this all the time with like, I've got to be robotic. I can't disclose information. I can't be real. I can't use real life examples. Like I can only speak in clinical jargon. And my argument's always like, who the fuck speaks like that? Like nobody <laughs> speaks like that. It's so true. But look what school has done to us. We have taught, they have taught us to approach the field in this one particular way. If it does not resonate with my soul, it doesn't align with who I am as a person. How can I effectively and authentically show up and serve? People, clients pick up on you being fake and phony. And I tell my clients, please call me out if something ain't jiving or, you know, just, just ask me, how, how you doing, Dr. Dominic? You seem off. Um, but it is important for us to get ourselves under control. And I do talk a lot about therapeutic or therapists practicing self-care. If we are not well, how can we attend to others? We are definitely a profession that doesn't practice what we preach very often when heart regrets. Exactly, right? Like it's it's one of those things where we just don't practice what we preach. And you're so right. How can you take care of other people and support their healing if you haven't done the healing yourself? And I think we can only go as deep as we've gone. And if we're not willing to be vulnerable and be real, and even I ask my clients to call me out, like you said, and if I make mistakes, it happens. I'm a human being, like, let's own that shit. Like, I think that a lot of people assume that means it's self-serving, but that's not the case. It's more so we're creating the normalization of the human experience and destigmatizing mental health. Yes, absolutely. And it breaks down the hierarchical uh, paradigm as well as, well, I can never be wrong because I'm your therapist. It's like, if I misstep, you know, I had a client last week, she said, you know, hey, you mentioned something that didn't sit well with me. And I said, oh, you share, you know, uh, I'm open. And once we explored it and she got my shared, uh, my meaning behind it, which I recognize I didn't clarify that with her, but she said, I feel so much better. I'm able to talk to you about this stuff. Because in the real world, many people avoid conflict, which we know in terms uh, harbors all of those feelings and people act them out. I tell people, we either, us as therapists and uh, clients too, you act out behaviors and things you do and things you don't do. Not doing anything and letting shit simmer is acting out. Absolutely. And what a beautiful testament to the trust that they must have in you to be able to say that and name that, right? Like, and if they didn't feel that way and they held on to that, the outcome is I can't be real in this space anymore. I can't actually be vulnerable or I'm just never going to show up again. And therapy isn't for me. Exactly. Yep. And so, yeah. And, and I think that is breaking the mold 
of inviting our clients to have a relationship with us, a professional therapeutic relationship. Man, so often people are like, oh, that's unethical to do certain things. How the hell is that written in the ethic? Everything can't be unethical if you're a human being. We know what not to do. Don't do that stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Don't have sex with your clients. Like, don't show up wearing Budweiser t-shirts. Like, don't meet them at bars for drinks. Like, what the fuck? We are a profession who loves waving the unethical flag, though. And if you're a part of the bigger Facebook groups, you see it all the time. And it's just like, you're you're so right. Like, our profession is about relationship building. How do we build relationships if we aren't real people or we are inaccessible? Yes. And I, and I absolutely agree with that wholeheartedly. But also, it is important to clarify, I believe I have a great rapport and alliance because I get some clients who are court ordered and they're like, I don't want to be here. And I'm like, oh, I get you. Um, <laughs> so not every client likes me. And it's not about liking, but do we have a shared understanding, which is the alliance of what it's going to take to get you from A to B? That, that's, that's, that's what we need. And so it definitely invites therapists to really examine themselves, their biases, and what feels good. If that training stuff that they taught you don't feel good, you, you have the right to change it up to make it make sense for you. That's such a good point because I think people listening can assume like it is just about the connection. And you're right, it's about the alliance too. And it's about meeting people where they're at. Like, you have to adapt and change how you work with every single person who works, walks in the door. I don't think it can be a one size fits all approach. You know, I used to work only with men with addiction and a lot of them did not want to be in my office. So I know what it's like to be a man struggling with addiction and I just name it like, Hey, I know it fucking sucks to be here and I know you don't want to be here and we can either use this time or we can just sit here in silence, but whatever you want to do, that's, that's on you. And it's your goal. It's your plan. So I just think it's important to kind of to navigate it that way. But you're right. I mean, if it doesn't sit well with you, right? And that's the same thing for supervision. And I think a lot of people don't think they have the right to change supervisors or like seek out outside external supervision. And I hear this a lot with people of color who are like, my supervisor doesn't get cultural or diversity at all. They don't do the work, but I feel like I have to work with this person because I don't have any other options. Yes, Yes and no. You know, if you're, you know, in a small city and you have to, your supervisor has to be in your state or whatever, because your school program, we have a shared responsibility to do the work we need to do and regulate ourselves if that other person won't change. But also part of that responsibility is speak the hell up. You know, at a lot of my internships, they call, they would call my clinical supervisor, like she's a little opinionated. No, she's a self-advocate. And that is the difference between uh, accepting and taking a supervisor's BS when it's hurtful versus getting what you need to get up out of there. And another reason I created Beloved is I work with a lot of high-functioning professionals um, who are one of few in many spaces, is that they don't have supervisors look like them. They don't have colleagues and other people that look like them. And so how do you regulate yourself but also claim the space you deserve because you deserve to leap out of their sh- less stressed, just like everybody else. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. So you're, you're really helping people advocate in more ways than one in terms of taking up space and using your voice and deserving to be heard and respected. Absolutely. And I actually work with a lot of therapists who were in the very similar situation as myself. I have never had a black work supervisor and I've never had a black clinical supervisor. 
And so I get a lot of them. There is that fine line. I ain't just supervising. I'm your therapist. You know, I just supervise there. But part of that space, how do you want to use this space? Well, I want to be able to effectively communicate with my supervisor that I disagree without feeling like I did something wrong. Black women naturally carry a sense of guilt when we confront a white person. Okay. And uh, I was uh, having a conversation with someone and we were talking about how that white person is always in our head. Are we too loud? Were we too aggressive? I always say certain folks can be assertive and so certain folks can't. Some people get accolades for, for being great leaders and, you know, whatever. And some folks get chastised. That is just how it is. But that don't mean you have to go along with that flow. I like that. And that's a really good point for people to hear. You know, I think about, you know, so often like my wife works in the the federal government and has to code switch very often. And like, there's like U.S. government, Ariel. There's um, I'm with my family, Ariel. There's I'm with my white friends, Ariel. Like having to switch tone of voice and how you show up in every single environment and being hypervigilant about everything and about how you're received too, because it's like... There's moments where she's like, I spoke out and now I'm the angry, angry black woman at work. And I was just trying to defend myself and like speak up. And it's like, those are the types of things that white people do not have to think about in any circumstance. And in the mental health field, I just think we do such a poor job of having any sort of cultural sensitivity in terms of moving through this world. Yes. And I'm glad you to say cultural competence because Patrick, I would have came at you. I'm like I'm <laughs> fully competent about anybody else per se. And so, it, you know, I'm a person who really looks at like the derivative of words, the origination of them. That I don't believe that is possible. We can be culturally sensitive. We can demonstrate cultural humility and all of that. So I empathize with what your wife is going through. Um, you know, so many of us have to do that. But I invite black and brown women to wonder what would it be like if I didn't cold switch as often or at all? And what is it within me that I can change where I don't feel like I need to? It, it came with a, a level of survival, the thought that I need to cold switch. Have we experimented and uh, tried it? What if we didn't? And what is even cold switching? Changing your voice, changing that. You get the same me across the board. <laughs> You know, and so I tell, I invite my clients to take a step back and say, I wonder what would it feel like and what would it be if you didn't co-switch tomorrow? Mm. We I like a, that. We're in survival mode all the time that we forget we have the ability to not do it in certain places. Such a good point, you know, and I think that a lot of listeners will never experience that or understand that. So you're working in a state where white therapists are the majority, right? And white clients are probably the majority of the clients going into private practice therapy. So with that being said, you know, how do you see that ever changing and being different in terms of white people create white therapists creating more cultural sensitivity? Because like you said, competency is, that's not the word, but they, the work has to be done because there aren't enough therapists of color to support the need, right? Like there's not enough therapists who look like their clients and especially in certain states. And that is okay. And uh, I love how, uh, how you phrase that as well. What can white therapists do? And it does take white therapists to recognize that something is off. 
you know, I, I get called into a lot of private practices to do uh, cultural humility and sensitivity training because they're like, we're all white. We recognize we're white, our website's white. I say, well, how about you start there? Why do you find yourself only hiring white people? You cannot be in front of a black client if you haven't even done the background work. That, that, that speaks for itself. And so what can people do? I, one thing I want to say is even the clients I work with, I always say we share similar melanin, but I just might not be the provider for you. And that's okay too. I have several diverse people who have immediate openings. I want you to give them a try. So I don't want uh, people to think that only Black people need to see Black therapists. That's not necessarily true and vice versa. Because sometimes the, the conversation gets lost in that oh, white people are not capable. I'm not here to rescue white people, but I am here to call you out if you are not doing the background and the legwork to hold space for people that don't look like you. That's very well said. And I think that's, that's, that's really important to, to think about in that way. And I do think practices need to do ongoing work. So if that's the value behind your practice and who you are as a person, then you really have to do the work. It can't just stop at like, I'm going to make a statement or I'm going to participate in a movement. Like you have to do the work. And I think that hiring consultants of color to help lead that work is crucial, especially for practices out there who, who really want to be supportive of clients of color and BIPOC people in general. Right. Some of the best experiences I've had walking into all white clinical spaces is sitting in their supervision, sitting in their consultation uh, groups or supervision uh, groups. And, you know, my whole model is how do we ask better questions? Every question can be a, a good question. I don't think there are dumb questions, but how do we ask better, meaningful questions? And I think folks are scared to say what's happening and to say what's not happening. So, you know, if you're a white therapist, you know what you know, and you, you know what you don't. And there's going to be blind spots to that too, right? Like there are blind spots and we have to be aware of what those are. And that, I think that comes with the territory of being a therapist in general. Like you have to know those areas of growth because I don't think we can assume that we know everything about everything at any point in time in this career, especially when we're working with human beings. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I want to go back to a point uh, we were talking about earlier in terms of, um, you know, why, how clients, you know, are connected and why I feel connected with them and they feel connected with me. A lot of my clients have mentioned the, my Black women and girls is that when they go a lot of places, people assume certain things about them. I put all my assumptions in check because I have taken over people's experience. And so one thing that really stands out to me is people assume they can't afford, uh, people assume Black people can't afford the out-of-pocket rate. People assume Black people got certain kind of insurance until you say where you work and all of that. My clients, I have, we have a mutual respect. My policies are my policies and my rates are my rates. And if I am not the provider for you, let me help you get to where you need to be. So I say that for, as a reminder for us to check ourselves and it, as we check our biases and assumptions, we then create room to grow. That is so wonderfully said. And I think that is so important to pay attention to because we do have these biases that exist and I even see that a lot on a lot of the Facebook groups or therapists and some of my own coaching clients who are BIPOC. And why would any, could anyone that looks like me ever afford to pay me out of pocket? And I can't answer that question in terms of lived experience, but I can say, this is what I see. And 
it's really a beautiful thing when we can work through some of that stuff in terms of mindset, because I have some clinicians who are in Oklahoma who are charging $250 an hour and they're getting it all day long. (laughs) (laughs) So it's, it's wonderful to see that though. And I, I think that you're so right that we have these assumptions and I do think it's important to really pay attention to that. But I also like your comment about like finding the appropriate landing spot. And that's important no matter what, right? Like clients who call us, we're not going to be able to support everyone that calls us no matter who they are. And finding the appropriate landing spot is a part of our job and making sure that they get the best quality of care and can use the resources that they have. And I think so often we internalize that almost and like take it personally. So I think that is really an important point. Absolutely. Um, One of the earlier pushbacks I got when I opened Beloved, I was very, very vocal about, you know, my mission and my vision was from certain Black folks. If you really care about the people, why you only this? I started off taking insurance, but I, that, that kind of hell ain't for me. I'm, you know, certain <laughs> insurance if y'all still ain't paid me two years later, bye. So I only take you insurance, only two. I am a heavy EAP provider because it fits with the whole solution focus, uh, true solution focus uh, work I do. And I take self-pay. And so I got a lot of pushback was if you really cared about the people, you wouldn't do certain things. I said, my three eyes I operate on, influence, income, and impact. And I need to live and take care of my life and my family. And so I had to work through of, man, am I really not strong up for my people? But my service to my people comes in many ways outside the office, volunteer work, Um, You know, I do the sewing class. I use sewing as a conduit to facilitate understanding of mental health and well-being. And so that's something a lot of Black therapists I know have worked through as well. Am I really not showing up for my people? And am I fitting in that box of inequality and oppressive approach to work if everybody can't afford me? Everybody's not for me. That could be a mic drop moment. That can also be the title of this episode. So I really appreciate that. Influence, income, impact. I love that. And That's such a great, great point. And I think that it's one of those, it's got to be one of those internal struggles that happens all the time for people when it's like, how do I create accessibility, but how do I also afford to live my life? And I think those things are always being juggled in this profession. Um, But I see it obviously much more often for for therapists of color, because it's like, there is that mentality a lot of the time of like, people that look like me cannot afford me. But then what you're saying is like, I'm giving back in so many other ways too. And I'm supporting and and the community so many other ways other than just 60 minute uh, increments of my time. Mm -hmm. And it's not even just with Black folks. It's, you know, I recognize not everyone can afford to pay out of pocket. So that whole pardon, let's go back to ethic, that whole pro bono thing. (laughs) Nobody said it had to be on my job. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. And and you can do that in other ways, right? Like you can you can donate time, you can donate resources, like you can show up in an advocacy effort. Like there are so many ways to balance the scales of accessibility in the therapeutic world, but you're right, ethical flag goes up and also like we think about running jokes in grad school and agency jobs that are like you don't get into this field to make money and we create all this money shame around even having this conversation. And then we're stuck, like burnt out, can't pay the bills, and we're questioning our career choices. And like, sometimes we do this to ourselves, though. How I loop those two, that that shame and that guilt went away when I decided to be a doctor. I said, how much is it 
<laughs> okay, I'm going into business for myself. I knew I was going to own my business. And so that went out the door. But how I make it make sense and I keep that, that because it still comes up like, oh, am I charging too much? Am I this? No, for this area, I'm probably undercharging. I know I am. But I keep it in check because in order for me to show up unburnt, <laughs> unburnt is I need to invest into myself. And that comes when people invest into me. There are too many black and brown folks being missed, under, and overdiagnosed due to uh, shitty counselors and therapists. So if I am being rewarded, which is my income and my impact and influence, I can keep showing up. I don't have nobody in my business saying, you know, good job, you get employee of the month. My rewards come when I get to travel for my uh, people investing into me. And that's what I consider, you know, uh, play on words, fees versus investment. On my website, it says, these are my, this is your investment. You're investing into yourself. I love that. It's a lot different than thinking about it as like rate for service or fee for service, because it is an investment and we can never quantify what our quote unquote worth is, right? We see that all the time, like charge your worth. And it's like, what the fuck does that even mean? Like, how can you put a number to that? But I love the fact that you're, you're naming it that way. And also it's a trickle down effect, right? Like if you're supporting people in the community, then they can heal and then they can support in the community or they can change trajectory and pathway. And I think that is really powerful. And again, I don't know how we put a price on that, but the ability for you to travel, do the things you love. I know we were just talking about that before we started recording. Doesn't that keep you like motivated and unburnt, so to speak, and just able to show up with your cup full, so to speak, so that you can support in the best way that you can? Absolutely. I just got back from Rio and Brazil and you know, have a few other trips lined up. That is exactly how. If my cup is full um, or being filled, I know come whatever hour that is, I'm going to be fully present. And if I'm not, I'm going to take time off. I use my mental health days. I use my breaks during the day. I, I tell my clients, um, I'm very honest with them. You know, I'm not feeling my best self. Today is not the best day to meet. I would invite you to self-schedule and reschedule to what's convenient for you. And so, yes, those are my rewards. They got to come from somewhere. Yeah, I don't think we become entrepreneurs to like recreate our agency environments or our corporate America environments. And I think we, you know, there's a lot of similarities, right? Like everyone always says, autonomy, freedom, flexibility, more money, more travel. That's always the answer. And that's good because those are my... Those are my values too. But I mean, I think that what you just said again is modeling healthy behavior, right? Like I'm not feeling my best self. So I think it would be in our best interest to reschedule is giving the, uh, the client permission to do the same thing, right? Like if they're feeling the same way, they can name that with you. And I would always do that with my clients when I was seeing therapy clients like, hey, my head's not in a good place today. And I don't think I'm going to be, you know, a the most used to you or the most, you know, the most helpful today. And let's just reschedule. And, and it just, again, is like permission to be human. Um, it takes away some of that like pedestal power dynamic situation as therapist versus client. And I think it, again, just normalizes the human experience. Like we all struggle and that's okay. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Um, it, oh, I love how you, I love how you put that is we do all struggle and I think I posted online not too long ago. Yes, therapists don't have it all together too. Yes, I just did a TikTok about that. <laughs> Ooh, I'm gonna check it out. I'm gonna check it out. And that's <laughs> a lot of different things. Um, but if we are not well, how can we pour into others? 
Yeah. And I, again, going back to like not practicing what we preach, we can say self-care all day long and then helpers notoriously, not just therapists, like people in all helping professions tend to burn themselves out, work too much, do too much, like put everyone else first. And it's not selfish to put yourself first because how else can you help people if you can't do that? No, it's not just about me. This is about me in the present, but I am building a legacy. I have never had an inheritance. I have never had a piece of china given to me. I have nothing. I have three pictures of me from being a little kid. That's all I got to my childhood in a bowl, one bowl. Like I stole from my grandma. She don't know I got it. Um, <laughs> so when I do this, and I, when I say I live out loud, I live through the good, the bad, the ugly, and ugly as hell. And I'm very vocal and transparent. I am building a legacy so that my next generation has something to honor and cherish. Mm, I love that. That's, that's so powerful. And having, you know, you're doing this in the moment and just living out loud and just really being real. And I think that makes a difference for people. I think people need to see all sides of this. Like, it's so easy from the outside looking in, like entrepreneurship is glamorous and small business ownership is always vacations and, you know, all these things. And it's like, hell no, it's not. Like, it, it is a lot of heartache. It's a lot of self-doubt. It's a lot of questioning, a lot of imposter syndrome and insecurity. And like, a lot of consideration, should I go back and bartend at Applebee's again? Like, I'm just like, but at the end of the day, we get to have control over the situation and our policies and how we move through the world in terms of business ownership. And I think that that is really, really empowering. And mm -hmm. I wouldn't have it any other way. No, no. It is that uh, opportunity for free will. If you're a therapist out there and, you know, you're really trying to get your bearings down with private practice. So what if you had to pick up a few shifts at Applebee's? Hopefully you get free appetizers. Enjoy. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Well, exactly. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with pivoting. So often when we're on a track or, you know, we're grooving, we have become so fixated on what would everybody think if I didn't succeed? I recently closed my physical office. I ain't been to that office in two years. So folks is just taking my money. I have been traveling. Like I said, it's just me. I closed, before I closed the office a few months before I decided not to renew the contract and some crazy mess popped off. I sat with so much sense of failure, imposter. And I went back and looked at my analytics and income and I said, girl, if you don't get yourself together. <laughs> but but so who, who said that having a physical office was a definition of success? I did. And so I decided my, define my successes and I decide, de define my failures. It's okay if you need to take a step back and pivot, wherever you need to pivot in your niche, pivot with your rate, your investment rates, whatever you need to do to pause and regroup, take advantage of the opportunity. That's so perfectly put. And there's no permanence to this. I think we get so caught up in like black and white and whatever decision I make today is the rest of my career. And that's the beauty of small business ownership is you get to constantly reevaluate how you're running your business, what's working, what's not, what you want to change, what you want to shift. That could be your niche, whether you want to have a physical office, whether you want to be a travel therapist, like all of these things get to go into play and there's no right or wrong answer. And I think a lot of the times we're just in comparison traps with, because of social media, like we see all these people like, my goal for the year is to make $718,000 and I'm going to do A, B, and C. And it's like, who fucking cares? Like everyone's situation is very different and we don't know what goes beyond goes on behind the scenes. So 
it's really important to just listen to yourself and not shame yourself if you have to, like you said, pick up a few shifts at an Applebee's nearby or like pick up part-time work or do something different. It doesn't matter, but just make it work for you. And then you can be okay with how your situation plays out and just know that it's always going to change and you can always adapt and you can always edit. You can always improve. And that's a big part of doing the work. Yes. Those are some of the essentials to burnout prevention and treating yourself well. When you can give yourself permission to pivot, that's the best gift possible. You deserve to live a life with mistakes and to be perfectly imperfect, but you deserve just as much to succeed and have the opportunity to keep trying again. Many folks don't get that opportunity and we know that. You know, coming out of COVID and what we're seeing across the world, many folks don't get tomorrow. That's true. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, yeah, I think that's just a really good reframe for everyone listening. You really don't know if tomorrow is guaranteed for a variety of reasons. And just don't r- hold anything back or regret not doing something because you're, you're scared. Because then you go through life with resentment and wondering what if. And I think that is the most, one of the most painful things that we can experience. Right. Uh, I encourage people, get out of shooting and get out of what if. Shooting is an unrealistic fantasy, desire, and belief, but it's not the reality. The reality does not fall in shoulda, coulda, woulda. What is real? What feels good? And what do you need right now? So many good quotes from you this episode. Now I have all these struggles. What am I going to like... What am I going to name it? What am I going to quote? But this was this was awesome. So I just want to say that I, I really appreciate you making the time and um, coming on here. And I'm glad we connected this way. And I want to just ask you if you could, you know, any advice for the audience that feels really like um, a last second thought or, or idea and then promote whatever you've got going on so people can find you. Yes. To piggyback off exactly what I just said about shooting, I want to... Uh encourage you to get out of what if too. So often we say, well, what if it goes wrong, negative, or it doesn't work out? What if it does? That's it. To wonder and be curious is the art we've lost. Children do it so well. So just be curious and wonder about all the possibilities that you deserve. And the only way to know for sure is to try. Mic drop moments all over the place. Look, you you, uh, you, you feed me right now. <laughs> I love the back and forth. That's why I love doing these podcasts. It's just really seeing everyone else's processes and and the things that they're creating and the things that they have worked through to get there. And it, you know, your story is is definitely one that has shown a lot of fucking perseverance. And and I just want to congratulate everything that you've accomplished and that you're doing. Um, where can the audience find more of you so that they can find what what you're offering? Yes. My practice is BelovedWellnessCenter.com. That is B-E-L-O-V-E-D, WellnessCenter.com. You can find us across social media platforms at the same name. For my speaking and consulting, you can find me at DominiquePritchett.com. I'm sure it'll be in the show notes. Um, I will be launching a few services for mental health professionals. I've already started a, a website design that are user-friendly. And uh, uh, I've started website design that's user-friendly and easy maintenance. And I will be launching private practice principles, many courses for new and established mental health therapists. It sounded like a perfectly rehearsed infomercial. (laughs) 
Oh, it totally just came out like that. <laughs> I like that you're like your face for people not able to see everything change like facial expression, body language. Um, but nevertheless, everything will be in the show notes so that you can have access to everything Dominique is creating and that you can have more access to her social media, her year long planned out content and everything else that, that comes along with it. Um, thanks for everyone listening to the All Things Private Practice podcast. You can download, like, subscribe, share on all major platforms. New episodes out every Sunday morning. Doubt yourself. Do it anyway. See you next week. Thank you. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.